something huge. We are at a crossroads and the future is completely within our control. We're living through the single biggest culture shift of our time. This is the time for us to just really take charge. That's what revolutions do. They enable the impossible. Hey everyone, welcome to this episode of The Gross Show. Today we're sitting down and talking with Dan Pink. He's been influential in the business world for decades. He sold over 2 million copies of his books. We're talking about a whole host of fun subjects, motivation, sales, artificial intelligence. Let's dive right into our conversation. I'm Kit Bodner, and this is The Gross Show. To start our discussion today, I'll start off with a story. Um, it was... So about almost seven years ago now, I was sitting in Cambridge, Massachusetts. I was doing my job interview with HubSpot CEO Brian Halligan, Dan, a guy you've sure. gotten the, the chance to meet a couple times. And the thing I remember about that interview with Brian is that we spent about 30, 40% of the interview talking about your book drive. Mm. And we talked a lot about motivation because we were talking about marketing and what got people interested and what got people interested in ideas and how personas were shifting. It was, it was a really interesting conversation. And we got talking about motivation. And motivation is something you you focused a lot on over time. What what do you think managers get wrong about motivation? Yeah, well, I, and you ended up taking the job anyway, in spite of that. I, it sounds I, like I know exactly. And no, Brian was, ended up hiring. And Brian ended up hiring you in spite of that. So <laughs> exactly, um, exactly. That's a lesson to all your listeners to short all of your HubSpot stock immediately. Uh, now, so what, are, what, are, what do managers get wrong about motivation? Basically, there's a kind of, we use a lot of different rewards in organizations, but the mainstay reward is what social psychologists call a controlling contingent reward. I like to call it an if-then reward, as in if you do this, then you get that. If you do this, then you get that. It's a classic kind of reward that we use inside of organizations. And what 50 years of social science... Parenting everything, right? Yeah, you're totally right about that. It's not only organizations, it's in schools, it's in our homes, it's a mainstay motivator. Um, And what 50 years of social science tells us is that those kinds of motivators, again, just this big category of if-then motivators, are great for simple and short-term tasks and not so great for complex and long-term tasks. The reason they're great for simple and short-term is that human beings, we love rewards. They get our attention. (laughs) They get our attention in a very focused, narrow way. That's very good. Narrowing in, zooming in, putting your blinders on is very effective if you know exactly what you need to do and you can see the finish line. It's extremely effective. But it's not very effective at all for work that requires more judgment, more discernment, more conceptual thinking, more creativity. And to zero, to sort of circle back to your question, I think the ultimate mistake, sort of the, the next level mistake that managers make is that they end up applying if-then rewards to everything rather than to that one category where they demonstrably work. Okay, so so yeah, and so you just keep double, doubling down, and it's like literally, again, the, the definition of insanity there. So like, what is the right path in that case? Like, well, what is the right motivation yeah. for those different types of tasks? It's really hard, but there's some design principles. Design principle number one is pay people well. Pay people <laughs> fairly. You know, one of the things that frustrates me, and maybe you're hearing it come out in my answers here, is that it's very easy to caricature what this research says. You know, there is no question that intrinsic motivation is enormously important. It is, I think the evidence is overwhelming, that it is the key to high performance. But that doesn't mean that people don't care about money. And if you get that right, or if you get that 
considerably less wrong than a lot of people get it, then it turns out there are three key motivators for enduring performance on these more complex, creative, complicated sorts of, of, of work. Uh, one of them is autonomy, which is a sense of self-direction. Do you have some sovereignty, some control over what you do, when you do it, who you do it with? The second one is mastery. And mastery is our innate desire to get better at something that matters. Progress is an intensely important day-to-day -day motivator on the job. And the final one is purpose. And, and, and to oversimplify it, it's basically, do you know why you're doing what you're doing? All right. Are you doing something in the service of a cause larger than yourself? Or are you doing simply that just makes a contribution? And so if you pay people well and fairly, really fairly, if you pay people fairly and then give them some degree of autonomy, allow them to you know, achieve mastery, make progress and give them a sense of purpose, then you have a fighting chance of having an environment in which people are enduringly motivated, not motivated in the kind of short term sugar high way of a lot of these mm -hmm. if, if then rewards. When did you have that type of environment? Boy, oh boy. Well, it's interesting you say that. It's a, I mean, I work for myself. I've been self-employed. I mean, I am, <laughs> I am one of two employees of Daniel Pink, Inc. Um, I never really had, I never really was in an organizational setting where I felt like I had the sufficient mix of those things, especially on the autonomy. There would be moments where, yeah, I got, you know, working at certain jobs, I, I absolutely made progress and got better at, at stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, every once in a while, I would feel a sense of purpose. But really lining them all up, especially that autonomy piece, really didn't occur until I went to work for myself, which is, I mean, I've been working for myself for a very long time. I've been working for myself for 19 and a half years. Wow. Yeah. All right. So Drive, it's, you know, I, I was talking about Drive seven years ago in, the, in, in my interview with Brian. And I guess we've talked about the three factors of motivation as We've evolved over the past seven plus years yeah. um, as like new generations are in the workforce. Has the weighting, the importance of the three of those things oh, changed at all? You know, is autonomy now more important with a millennial generation or is purpose more important? Like, I think the principles have stayed pretty true, but is, is how you should think about approaching them any different? Hmm. I don't think it's radically different. And again, mm -hmm. the the... I mean, because, you know, books are linear and because speech is linear, that is one word follows another follows another, you know, I have to put autonomy, master and purpose in some in some kind of order. But I don't want that to suggest that it's that it's either sequential or there's a ranking of them. Mm -hmm. uh, it's really they are I mean, a, a better metaphor in some ways is they are, you know, key ingredients in a soup and they all flavor each other. And depending on the person even depending on the time of a person's life, the circumstances of a per person's life, there's going to be greater import for one or the other. So again, so they, they work together and I don't think that there is so much of it is idiosyncratic. For some people, it's going to be, mm -hmm. you know, autonomy is a higher virtue. For other people, mastery is a higher virtue. For some people, um, purpose is a higher virtue. And as I said before, even you take the same person. So, so Kip at age X might have different weighting than Kip at age X plus five mm -hmm. versus Kip at age X plus 15. So, it, so it, it, really all, it really all depends. On the millennials, though, there is one... I, okay, so I'll, I'll start with... I, I'm, I'm kind of a skeptic on generational differences. 
Okay, I, that's interesting. I am, I am. Uh, largely because I think that there are um, basically every generation in human civilization has felt that the generation rising behind it didn't work as hard, didn't pay their dues, <laughs> it's kind of slacking. I mean, it probably goes back to the cavemen. So the, <laughs> the, the, the cave children, you know, at age 18, it's like, oh my God, these guys, you know, I used to kill three saber-toothed tigers in my day, and they're just content to kill one and sit around and watch the fire. So I think there's a kind of a bias there. But I think there is a material difference for millennials on one of these things. I think arguably on two of them, but I think the most prominent one would be on mastery. And particularly a dimension of mastery, which is this. When we try to make progress, when we try to achieve mastery in any domain, we need information on how we're doing. Like you can't get better at something unless you know how you're doing. And, and that requires uh, greater feedback. So if you think about a video game, one reason video games are so popular and so alluring is that you get, you know, you really get great feedback. You know how you're doing instantly, right? And, and the challenge then rises to your level of ability. And I think, unfortunately, in the workplace, the feedback systems are completely broken down. I mean, it's like a feedback desert. Now, people like me, I'm a Gen Xer, and even people older than me, say baby boomers, they're kind of used to that um, mm -hmm. in the same way that people who live in a place that, where it rains all the time don't complain about the rain just because they're used to it. Um, but <laughs> doesn't I, mean it's good. It just means they're right, used to it. Exactly. It per perfectly said. And, and I think that for millennials, they actually have a different lived experience than people even you know, a little bit older than them as I am. So if you think about a 30-year-old person working at HubSpot, or a 30-year-old person working at a mid-sized company that's, you know, where somebody from that company is listening to your show. You know, someone who's, uh, it's just like a middle-class American who's age 30, that person was using a computer probably in elementary school. That person mm -hmm. was using the internet in high school. Uh, that person was probably, if they went to college, was using the internet in college. You know, they played video games their whole lives. They're used to texting and getting things instantly. They probably all have Alexa in their apartment mm -hmm. or their house. And so they can say, Alexa, what's the gross domestic product of Ecuador? And Alexa will tell them immediately. And so their whole lives have been lived in this kind of ecosystem of, you know, instant, regular, personalized, constant feedback. And so I think that when they get into companies, uh, particularly the larger companies, um, you know, companies that go beyond a few people, companies that have to have mm -hmm. certain kinds of systems in place because of their size, uh, I think they find it very unsatisfying because they're in a feedback desert. They've gone from this world for 30 years of, you know, this incredibly rich, personalized feedback, and then they walk through the door of an organization, and it's like, what the heck? Well, you get <laughs> feedback once a year? This is crazy. Like, how can anybody live here? Yeah, no, on the on the feedback thing, it's yeah, it's fascinating. We we had the opportunity to talk with a woman named Kim Scott who was at Google for a long time, worked under Sheryl Sandberg. She's got an awesome book coming out in March called Radical Candor and uh, it's a her whole thing. It's a, it's a terrific book. I even yeah. I, I blurb the book. And she Kim is a great uh, a great thinker, great leader. Yeah, she's awesome. Uh yeah, I think my copy is coming soon. So you got a, you've a little, got a little preview, but it's awesome. And exactly right. It's like it's so important to have that immediate feedback. Technology is rapidly evolving, you know, on the self-service side. Now you can, you know, go buy a $100,000 Tesla on their website, yeah. not, not just a $100 printer, right? So, right, right. Like those things are, are, are becoming far more acceptable in the world. And you have things like artificial intelligence and machine learning that are really picking up speed 
what's what's the future of, of selling and work look like? You know, I think you are somebody who is a student of a lot of this stuff. What, what do you see happening next? My view of AI, you know, machine learning and super duper smart algorithms and whatnot, you know, I don't, robots, uh, self-driving cars, I, I don't see them you know, obliterating all jobs in this kind of bleak mm-hmm. Blade Runner-like, <laughs> you know, uh, landscape. Uh, but I think they transform jobs. And what I would tell my own kids is, what I do tell my own kids is that, you know, you have to think about what, a lot of what we'll be doing at, at, in work are going to be, what can you do that augments what the machines are doing? What can you do that, that augments what the artificial intelligence is doing? Uh, what can you be doing that, that is, you know, that, that only humans can do and that these smart machines cannot. And those end up being things like creativity, dealing with ambiguity and nuance, which algorithms have a very, very difficult time doing, at least for now. Understanding other people's emotions, understanding their point of view, uh, dealing with poorly defined problems, which is, I think, what a lot of problems, especially in B2B are. Uh, Developing expertise, being able to have an incredible sense-making function of it being able to figure out what's a reliable source, what's not a reliable source. And, you know, those are, again, I think that the level of skill in sales and all, certainly in all white collar, most white collar professions, but certainly in sales is just going up and up and up and up and up. It's not the kind of thing where where being a good salesperson is about, you know, I mean, it's not, not about this. I, I want to emphasize sure. about pers- persistence, but it's not simply if I make 300 calls a day, um, I will get, you know, and I, if I make 300 calls a day um, the same, and say the same thing over and over to 300 prospects, maybe I'll get two or three deals. And if I do that every day, uh, I can make a living. I think that's an interesting perspective. I think a lot of people are a little bit more bleak on AI and its role in changing jobs. I think humans have always found a way to do more and drive progress. And it seems like that's what we're going to use this technology for, not to displace ourselves. We use ourselves to solve problems that we're better off solving. Uh, I, I kind of tend to agree with you there. Um, yeah, I mean, so, I, and I, I agree with you there. Not not because not because I'm necessarily an, not because I'm an optimist, but because there is a, yeah. there is a historical pattern here. So when Americans take a very very American focus here, you know, when Americans American economy used to be both in terms of output, but also in terms of the slice of the workforce. Not that long ago, in historic terms, call it 120, 150 years, was mostly agricultural, and so you know this, you heard the same kind of things here, saying, "Oh my gosh, these these machines, these these tractors and these threshing machines, uh, and other kinds of advances in 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 agriculture technology, they're going to displace human beings. We're going to have nothing <laughs> left to do." And well, what do you mean factories? Everybody can't work at a factory job. You have to live in a city. Nobody wants. Not everybody wants to live in a city. So, and besides, we can't sustain an economy simply making things. And you know what? We could. And then you had this, you know, and then you had the same thing happening. You had the same thing happening even within the last quarter, last third of the 20th century. There was this, I mean, it's not famous, but Lyndon Johnson in, uh, in the late 19, in the maybe 67 or so, put together this blue ribbon panel of labor economists, the smartest mm-hmm. minds in, the, in, the, in this realm at that time. Saying because these big room-sized computers had just come out, and and Johnson said, okay, we need a task force to say what does this mean, and of course they were projecting it to that far-off year of 2000, 
and what they came back with, if you look at this report, and, and forgive me, I'm spacing the name of it, but if you, if you just, if your listeners, the one or two people who might be interested in this, just, you know, Google, <laughs> Maybe three. Google, you like, you know, I don't know, Google me and email me, I'll send it to you. But the, um, <laughs> um, but the, the, there's this report from these, you know, the smartest people in, in the world, in the country at the time said, oh my gosh, we're going to have, these computers are getting ever more powerful. We're going to, by 2000, we're going to have widespread unemployment. Um, you know, it's going to be this ma- it's going to be a massive social dislocation, you know, uh, you know, unemployment rates that we haven't been able to, that we can't even fathom right now. These computers are going to obliterate all of our jobs. And what that, what that, the problem with that is that they didn't, they, they, there's a lot of stuff in the future that you can't foresee. So, so, you know, they didn't foresee, oh, maybe there'll be jobs for search engine optimizers. They didn't foresee, oh, maybe there'll be jobs for, you know, uh, Java programmers. Oh, they didn't foresee, my gosh, you know, there are, there are a heck of a lot of yoga instructors in America now. Maybe there'll be some jobs, <laughs> you know, for yoga instructors. They didn't foresee. Who saw, who saw SoulCycle happening? I mean, come yeah, on. Yeah, right. There'll be jobs for social media, you know, uh, the number of, especially young people I meet who are like social media folks mm-hmm. inside of firms. It's like, you know, so there's a, uh, I'm not, I don't want to be Pollyanna-ish about it because I think there are going to be some pretty serious social dislocations. And I think that we're on this this long-term trajectory toward widening, widening inequality that this is just going to exacerbate. But that said, I just, the historical pattern is such that a lot of these fears of just the obliteration of work over time have always been overstated because what they do is they discount they under they, they 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 don't have enough respect for human ingenuity. So if you think about AI, I mean Kevin Kelly said this, and I think he's the the writer, one of the the founding editors of Wired magazine, all mm-hmm. around brilliant guy. You know he he said um, the 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 most powerful application of AI twenty year twenty years from now is going to be something that no one today has ever heard of or thought about. Yeah, AI is going to think about it, right? <laughs> Yeah, but but again, it's like you know, if you think about all the you know, it's just there. Even these mundane, even something mundane like like uh, like Uber, is a good example of that, and it's a good example of what I was talking about before about this human capacity for problem finding, for giving people something they didn't know that they were wanting, for, didn't know that they wanted, for surfacing mm-hmm. latent problems. You know, I use Uber a fair amount actually because yeah, we're we're, we're a one car family, and and I you know, but it wasn't like. You know, that wasn't a case of problem solving of any kind. Mm-hmm. I didn't say to my wife, you know, uh, two years ago, Jessica, you know what? I have this problem. I don't know who's going to solve it, but it's a big, big problem. I <laughs> simply cannot find a complete stranger to come to my house and pick me up and drive me somewhere. <laughs> you know, so it's really missing yeah, in our lives. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, so I, I think that we we tend to there's a kind of a poverty of imagination in the present, and we don't have enough respect for what people in the future, how ingenious they will be. Yeah. Poverty of imagination in the present. That's a good quote. I like that. Uh, but before we go, you, so you've got, you've got a book coming out around timing and the science around timing. Can you give us a little, little teaser about what we can expect and some of the stuff you're going to potentially cover in there? Well, I'm not finished writing it yet, so I don't, so, but I, but this, this is a book about, um, this, this is a book that came about because it's a book that I wanted to read. Everybody talks okay. about how timing is everything, and and yeah. and I think that's true. You know, I, I think there's a lot to be said for timing. But what I what I realize is that everybody makes timing decisions based on gut and intuition, and it turns out there's this actually there's a science of good timing that comes out in a lot of research in 
biology. Uh, actually, some of it has to come out, uh, no joke, some of it comes out in, in actually research on, on sleep and sleep patterns, but in, <laughs> nice. in, in biology, in sociology, not really in sociology, but in biology, in social psychology, in economics, um, about how much time and timing, uh, how much timing affects what we do and how we can all get better at timing. So, so, um, so I'm trying to answer a whole series of questions about when we should do stuff, like when in the day should you do certain kinds of work? Uh, when in the day should you avoid certain work? When in the day is best for making a, a good impression? When in the day is best for making a decision? Uh, why do beginnings matter? Uh, we don't take beginnings seriously enough. They have a huge and profound effect on what we do. There's some incredible research on midpoints. Why does reaching the middle of something have this really peculiar mm, effect, both up and positive and negative? If you think about endings, when we know something is ending, we behave differently. Uh, how do people synchronize their own work with other people in, in time? Um, how does how does how we think about you know, like even thinking about time makes us behave in certain ways may, makes us behave uh, differently. There's even things about different languages treat tenses, verb tenses differently. And so mm-hmm. so one just just to give you I, mean, I don't want to empty the room here, but one interesting no, uh, one, 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 fascinating. one interesting thing here is that if you have if you have languages like the the um, like English. OK, so I say I go to the store uh, versus. I will go to the store. Okay, clear di- clear distinction between present and future. Other languages, Chinese Chinese for instance doesn't have this. They don't. It's the same thing. It says I go. Mm-hmm. It's basically say I go to the store, and you have to know from context whether the person is talking about right now or or in the future. That is, they don't have these clearly clearly divided gradations between present and future. Well, it turns out that places where people speak languages, people who speak languages that have this kind of where the present and future are kind of combined, they actually save more for retirement than people who see a clear division between present and future. And so even huh. even the languages we speak and the tenses they use can affect how we behave. So so that's that, that's what it is. But I still have a I still got a fair amount to write. Well, I'll be on the lookout for you. Hopefully, maybe chat with you again uh, yeah, once that comes I, out and you're and you're and you're and you're fully got that finished. Uh, appreciate you taking the time chatting with us today. Dan, it's been a, it's been a great conversation. My pleasure. Have a, Thanks for having me. Ha, have an awesome holiday season. Same to you. Next week, we're kicking off a very special series of episodes. Back in November, we recorded several live shows while we were at Inbound, uh, HubSpot's event here in Boston. And on Tuesday, we're releasing the first of the bunch. You might have heard of our first guest. He's an actor comedian, and probably best known to all of you right now as a Donald Trump impersonator. Yep, next week's show is with Alec Baldwin. We're so excited. If you aren't subscribed to The Grow Show yet, now's the time. You don't want to miss this one.